Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Sperling. Our guest today is the Rachel Wilson, Managing Director and Head of Cybersecurity for Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley. Rachel spent the first 15 years of her career at the National Security Agency. While with the NSA, she held several key senior executive level leadership positions and led global counterterrorism efforts, as well as the planning and execution of thousands of cyber exploitation operations. In April 2017, Rachel became the first head of cybersecurity for Morgan Stanley Wealth Management and Investment Technology. She's responsible for protecting the global organization and advises leadership on cybersecurity issues. She also leads field and client education and communication on cyber risk, threats, and mitigations. Rachel was recognized by Morgan Stanley Wealth Management as part of the 2019 Makers Class. That is a program that honors women who serve as groundbreakers, innovators, and advocates. She was also named one of the top women in Wealth Tech 2020 by Think Advisor. She serves on the advisory board of Watsco Incorporated and on the CISO advisory board of Amgen Incorporated. She received her bachelor's degree from Wellesley College and master's degree from University of Chicago. And she will return to Chicago for ACHE's 2022 Congress on Healthcare Leadership held in person March 28th through the 31st. That will be at the Hyatt Regency. You can learn more and register today at ACHE.org slash Congress. With that introduction, Rachel, welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast. Eric, thank you so much for having me. It is, it's an honor to be here, and I am so looking forward to Congress right around the corner. All right, let's get into some questions. Uh, the healthcare industry, the financial industry, they share, I guess you could say, some of the same cybersecurity challenges, particularly when it comes to the depth of personal data managed by these two industries. So in your opinion, what are some of those shared challenges and opportunities that you're seeing today? So we certainly have a lot of shared challenges, Eric. We both have lots and lots of personally identifiable information. So whether it's that healthcare data, that insurance information, for me, it's going to be a client's uh, personal financial data. But for many of us, right, there's all kinds of sensitivities that go beyond this. We have an increasingly high dangerous risk landscape around us. So cyber actors, Uh, that are coming after us because of all that very lucrative uh, personal information that we have about our customers, our patients, our clients, our our customers, of course, you know, our patients and our clients, they are suffering from very significant breach fatigue as it is. They are watching the news. They're seeing day in, day out that their data has been compromised once again in another place. They're worried about that. But at the same time, they have very high expectations of us. I mean, for those that are providing their safety, their security financially, medically, again, they rightfully have high expectations. And so we have a shared responsibility in this space to be doing everything we can to protect their data. All right. You mentioned some of these threats. I heard you say cyber actors. I heard you say breach fatigue. I never heard that before, but absolutely breach fatigue. So what do you foresee um, over the next six to 12 months that some of the most critical threats for healthcare leaders to understand? Well, the list just seems to be getting longer and longer, Eric. And this is another case where, you know, the pandemic has only made things worse. We've seen cyber actors really taking advantage of 
the isolation and loneliness that people feel, the social engineering scams have become more and more innovative. Uh, I know we're going to talk more about work from home. That has certainly introduced a new threat, a vector for all of these hackers. But you're exactly right. This is everything from cyber actors, you know, at the nation state level. So for me, I worry a lot about North Korea. North Korea, of course, up against staunch international sanctions, no domestic economy to speak of. So how are they funding their government? How is North Korea paying for that missile and nuclear program? Well, they're essentially paying for it by hacking into banks and stealing money. And they're doing this all around the world. They have a whole plank of their national strategy that's around hacking into banks as a means of funding their government. Now, some of us you know, are familiar with the Bank of Bangladesh heist. This is where the North Koreans hacked into the Central Bank of Bangladesh a few years ago, successfully carted off close to $100 million. But this was not a one-off for the North Koreans. This is core to their national strategy, so much so that we now estimate there are 7,000 people within the North Korean government who have bank hacking as their full-time job. Now, for all of us in in healthcare, where I worry even more is really about China. So China, if you think about their track record, if you believe, as I do, you know, that they were behind the Anthem hack, the Marriott Starwood hack, the um, the, uh, the the hacks that we've seen in at Yahoo, at Home Depot, at Target, all of those. What are the Chinese getting out of that? Well, what they're doing is harvesting as much personally identifiable information as they can about Americans and about global citizens. From a healthcare perspective, all of that very intimate detail about the patients that we serve could be viewed as hugely lucrative to the Chinese as they're forming these dossiers about each and every one of us. At lower levels, now certainly Iran, something I worry about. Iran, very different than the other two. You know, they're not financially motivated, but it is certainly uh, you know, a means of retaliating against economic sanctions and military action that they might see from the United States. So every time tensions get high with Iran, all of us should be worried because the Iranians don't hesitate to use cyber means really as an asymmetric threat to core U.S. industries. And then at a level below that, we certainly have seen over the last two years a huge rise in cyber criminal syndicate activity. So this can be really difficult to differentiate from what we see from nation states, which makes sense when you think for a minute about how much those North Korean and Chinese government hackers are getting paid right next to nothing. There's no money in North Korean government hacking. But what's the perk? Well, it's that these hackers get to take their cyber toolkit home with them nights and weekends and use it for their own personal betterment. And that's when we see them working for these cyber criminal syndicate groups. All of you have seen you know, the ransomware campaigns that have skyrocketed over the last two years, $20 billion in losses to ransomware campaigns just in the United States last year alone. Um, and these ransomware campaigns are coming after the healthcare industry in particular with real vehemence. They recognize, you know, if they can irrevocably encrypt that sensitive patient data such that we can't provide the services and treatments that, they, that our patients expect, that can be a life or death matter. And that means that all of us more and more likely to pay those ransoms. Now, of course, we meant more that we pay the ransom, the more we incentivize these kinds of cyber attacks. And this is why you see now uh, legislation pending with Congress that would actually make it illegal to pay a ransom. 
No surprise, who's behind this legislation? It's the insurance companies. They have paid through the nose this past year with all of these cyber insurance claims that have been uh, submitted by all of these entities that have been victims of ransomware attacks. But it really has become problematic, the most lucrative form of cyber attack by far over the course of the last two years. Healthcare and finance in particular, very lucrative targets for these kinds of hackers. And then lastly, we worry a lot about the phenomenon known as business email compromise. So this is where a hacker, very simplistic, right, simply takes over your personal or business email account. They read all of the emails you've ever sent or received, which can be hugely lucrative all by itself. If you think about individuals who've maybe emailed a tax return, a social security number, pictures of their birth certificate, of their driver's license, that sent queue alone, very easy to monetize. But what the hacker does next is then start sending emails pretending to be you. Now, from a business perspective, if you are a CFO, if you are in the finance department, if you are in the HR department, and you have access either to sensitive employee data or you have the ability to pay bills, to pay an invoice, to send an invoice. Just imagine how lucrative the ability to send emails that appear to be coming from you can be. We've seen uh, hospitals, healthcare entities get hacked. The, the, the sole goal of the hacker is simply to send uh, requests for payment, invoices all over the world, and have those payments go to a foreign bank in Brazil, in Malaysia, you name it. The compromise to an email account all by itself again, can be hugely lucrative. So Rachel, we just went over all of these things that we were concerned about, these threats that that are looming. Um, can we flip it a little bit and talk about maybe what are some of the things on the, on the other side um, as these threats get more innovative and larger? Are there things on the security side that you're optimistic about that are getting better, more innovative to, to combat these threats? Well, it's a great point, right? Because Eric, all is not lost. I mean, you look at that backdrop and you say, you know, it all looks gloom and doom. Right. But the reality is that there are a lot of things that all of us can be doing, you know, whether we are a large institution, medium-sized, small, or as an individual to combat this. Now, of course, people immediately default to the sexy stuff, right? They want to talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning. How are we going to leverage all that to be safer? And certainly there is a lot of goodness in what you see a lot of these next generation cybersecurity companies do it, doing, leveraging AI and ML uh, from a defensive perspective. But I would tell you, doesn't matter what size organization you are, there are absolutely some basic things that all of us should be doing and that all of us should be expecting our IT department, our chief technology officer to be doing for the firms that we support. And at the most basic level, Eric, a lot of this really comes back to stuff that I would put in the category of just basic hygiene. I mean, again, it is not the sexy stuff. This is sort of the brushing your teeth and eating your Wheaties of cybersecurity. It's just critically important to do it. And at the top of that list is this concept just known as patching. So that, you know, as new software vulnerabilities are being discovered and you get that update, that patch from Apple, Microsoft, Google, that you go ahead and update your phone, your laptop, your desktop as soon as you get that software update. If we do nothing else, 
this is the most important thing we can do to keep ourselves safe. And if you look back at 2020, where we had, you know, 2021, critical vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange, in Apple iOS, in the Android operating system, what was the solution to all of those problems? It was not, you know, buy some expensive vendor product. It was simply keep all of your operating systems, your browsers, the apps on your phone fully patched and up to date. And what it comes down to is all software manufacturers are always discovering new flaws, new bugs, new vulnerabilities in their code. They're fixing those vulnerabilities and they're issuing us the fix in the form of that patch. We keep ourselves patched. We're 99% of the way there. You set me up for a perfect segue here, and you touched on this earlier, talking about the remote workforce. So when preaching this basic hygiene, um, how are you seeing healthcare organizations uh, shift a little bit to help protect the edge of the network as you know the workforce becomes more decentralized and you have you know everybody with their devices at home and a huge remote workforce? So with all of those things that you just described, <laughs> how is it more challenging now in a, in, in a time and place where a lot of people are working remote? Well, it definitely is more challenging because if you think about this concept of like your your network perimeter, you know, when you had everybody sitting in an office at a desk and you controlled their desktop and you controlled the network they were on, you could make sure that all those best practices were in place. I could make sure that every desktop was fully patched and everybody's browser was fully patched. Now, in this remote work environment, I essentially have to work with the assumption that all of my employees, that none of them have ever listened to a word I've said, right? That they are totally unpatched, that they're clicking on links and emails, they're downloading attachments from unsolicited sources, they're going to untoward parts of the internet. I also have to work with the assumption that they're logging in from, you know, the Starbucks and from, you know, that, that they're on all kinds of networks that I don't mm -hmm. control. And so here's what, what cybersecurity and IT professionals have had to deal with over the last two years. It's basically now working with the assumption that all of our employees are working on compromised devices and leveraging compromised networks. And yet we have to give them the ability to work effectively and securely nonetheless. So what does this mean? It means that we need to work with the idea that we never want any of our employees to have any patient data ever persistently stored on any of their personally owned devices. And there are lots of ways to do this. You know, you want to leverage virtualization technologies such that employees are not doing work truly on their physical device. They're actually logging into their controlled device back in an office environment. You want to leverage strong encryption. So you want to have this all done under a VPN, a virtual private network, where even if that employee's home Wi-Fi is not secure, when they're interacting with uh, patient data with corporate data, they're doing so through an encrypted tunnel. This means that that data can't be changed and it can't be intercepted. And then lastly, and maybe most importantly, we want all employee remote logins to leverage strong multi-factor authentication. So long gone are the days, Eric, where we want anyone logging in with just a username and password. Because what happens then if that employee's computer is compromised, the hacker is simply going to either screen scrape or key log that login and password, then they're using it to log into your corporate network and they're, ask, they're accessing corporate and patient data. So very, very important. You know, you see lots of companies doing this in lots of ways. Maybe it's with a physical token. Maybe it's with an app on your phone that serves as that second factor. A lot of companies are now doing it with a biometric device. 
All of these are great. What you never want, though, is that for a, the compromise of a single device to result in a compromise of the corporate network. And so what we saw early on in the pandemic was a lot of companies not leveraging multi-factor authentication and getting absolutely lit up as a result. But we think through the combination of multi-factor authentication, encryption, and virtualization technologies, it's actually possible to work very safely remotely for the duration, however long this goes. Yeah, I remember being a part of that, and I know uh, several conversations on, a, you know, oh, multi-factor authentication, it's inconvenient. No, <laughs> it's it's very important for, for security, so leveraging that security versus... Well, yeah. Eric, you know what's really inconvenient? It's when a ransomware actor like encrypts your desktops for two weeks. That's very inconvenient. Exactly. All right, let's talk about resources because we've been talking about you know all of these things that could potentially happen and resources across healthcare organizations in this country. What scalable strategies can you recommend to help hospitals with, with let's just say, more limited financial resources that they can protect themselves and their patients? Well, it's a great point, right? Because I think there was a view a couple of years ago that you had to spend a lot of money to be, you know, cyber safe. And, and there was this view that, you know, the Fortune 100 were spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on cybersecurity vendors and building out these huge fusion centers and these massive teams. And that if you were not sort of Fortune 100 and above, you were falling below the cyber poverty line, so to speak. And I think that a lot of that view has changed and, and that now there's much more view that, again, if you're doing those basic hygiene things well, and you're doing responsible stuff like multi-factor authentication and, and consistent timely patching, that that can go a really long way. And, and people were reluctant to do those things, you know, to your point, Eric, when they felt that they would, in, they would increase uh, employee friction, that there would be, you know, consternation about doing those. But now we know that those are actually the most important things. And those are also very uh, cost effective they're, they're not expensive technologies to implement. And for a lot of us that are going with, you know, out of the box, whether it's G Suite or M365, Microsoft and Google have baked all of that stuff in for free. It's simply a question of turning it on and leveraging it. And if you do that, what you've done is essentially outsourced a whole bunch of your cybersecurity problem to people who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on cybersecurity practices. I tell small firms all the time, you want to decide what you need to do that is uniquely yours. What is your proprietary secret sauce? And then you want to outsource the rest of your IT department to the best athlete you can find. As a result, you're then leveraging all of their expertise. No one in 2022 should be managing their own servers, managing their own mail plant. You got to get that all of that out of house. Hmm. Okay. I want to ask you a follow-up question to, to, you know, you're talking about cyber actors here. So um, in both the banking and healthcare industries, you know, requiring customers to trust that their information is safe and secure. So how can healthcare leaders communicate the steps we're taking to protect those customers, those patients, but not giving too much information away to what could potentially be a, a cyber actor? Oh, it is, it is such a fine line, Eric. And it's one that I think all of us in this space are walking all the time. Because of course, the last thing I want to do is, you know, I don't want to do either of these things. I don't want to give away secret sauce mm -hmm. that then a bad actor can turn around and use against me or against my clients. Nor do I want to be in a position where I'm, you know, screaming from the rooftops that I'm the best when it comes to cybersecurity, because you know how these hackers are, right? They're all about the brass ring. You tell them you're the best. Now you've got a target on your back. So actually, these need to be very quiet conversations. 
But you're exactly right that it's really, really important given what our customers are expecting of us. And I think it really translates to two things. One, it's having conversations about what our customers can be doing to protect themselves. So, you know, as you read in my bio, one of my responsibilities is client education. I spend hundreds of hours a year talking to thousands of clients about the cyber risks that we see to them and what they can be doing personally to raise the waterline on their security. Now, of course, I think it's my responsibility to protect our clients from themselves. And certainly in healthcare, we spend a lot of time worrying about protecting patients from themselves, but we've got to be educating them along the way. There's also a huge component in this, though, that is also about employee education. Now, I tell my employees all the time, they are both my greatest point of risk and my first line of defense. I can tell you I am not winning any popularity contests at Morgan Stanley because I'm the one who sends the employees all the phishing tests and I'm the one who's constantly, you know, in their queue telling them what they need to do better and how we're changing policy to make things more difficult. But I think that employee awareness, getting to that see something, say something mentality where people really do see themselves as that first line sensor network, both to protect our companies and to protect our customers, that's critically important. Many, many times, the first person to know that a customer, a client, a patient has been hacked is going to be that first-line care provider, that first-line, you know, in my case, banker or financial advisor. All of those people need to be attuned to their role in protecting customers. All right, Rachel, I'm going to have you uh, for this last question kind of summarize a little bit uh, what we've been talking about because so much great information, um, great expertise. So how do you see cybersecurity infrastructure evolving over the next several years and what can healthcare leaders do to stay ahead of the curve in this space? So I think in terms of evolution, we are going to see more and more diversification of cyber actors. What we've seen over the last few years, Eric, really is a democratization of very advanced cyber capabilities that are now just available commodity on the dark web. And anyone, you know, 14 year old kids can simply watch YouTube videos and learn how to use cyber tools that five years ago were purely the bastion of high-end nation states. So this democratization of advanced cyber capabilities means that all entities are going to have to take this really this risk really, really seriously. And that's everything from you know, huge multinational companies all the way down to individuals. Ransomware campaigns we see targeting not just companies, but individual people. We see them targeting hospitals, nonprofits, houses of worship, university endowments. Anybody who cares about their data and is willing to pay a ransom, they're going to see themselves targeted. And these are more and more frequently going to be double extortion scams. So this is where the hacker gets in. They encrypt your data such that you can't do business. You pay a ransom to have your business restored. And then they're going to ask you to pay again, such that that data is not published or sold on the dark web. In some cases, these have actually become, I would say, ransom as a service subscriptions, where essentially you're going to pay every month for the rest of your life not to have that data exposed and not to have your systems re encrypted. The cyber actor hasn't left. He's actually just living there, uh, you know, in, re in resident in your network and you pay a ransom, you pay a, a subscription every month to have uh, two things happen. One, you don't have a ransomware campaign, your data doesn't go anywhere. And sometimes the ransomware actor will actually protect you 
from other ransomware actors. So who knows the brave new world that we may be going into here. But I think the bottom line for all of us in trying to stay ahead, it's going to be getting the hygiene things right. You know, it's going to be patching. It's going to be password management. The biggest risk, even now in 2022, that we see to customers is password reuse. And again, this is not high-end stuff. This is simply the customer who's been using the password, you know, kittens25 everywhere for the last decade. And now that password is very well known and associated with their email address. And, and we see them you know, being targeted for fraud as a result. So these kinds of things, you know, again, we've got to be worried about the high-end stuff, but we've got to get the basics right. All right, Rachel Wilson, um, in, incredible information, important information, the basic hygiene, um, so critical, so vital. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure, Eric. Looking forward to next month. Yep. And if you'd like to hear more from Rachel, remember, she will be a speaker at this year's Congress on Healthcare Leadership. Early bird pricing ends March 1st. So please register today at ACHE.org slash Congress. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us for the next ACHE's Healthcare Executive Podcast. This has been the Healthcare Executive Podcast, brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ache.org.